You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Why I'll Never Make It podcast presents the Spotlight Series, an in-depth look at those making a difference in the arts and beyond. Welcome to this edition of the Spotlight Series. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and today and for the next couple of weeks, I'll be taking an inside look at the New York Youth Symphony. Founded in 1963 as an orchestra to showcase the metropolitan area's most gifted musicians aged 12 to 22, its activities have since grown to encompass programs in chamber music, conducting, composition, and jazz, with performances at world-class venues including Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center. Today's guest is Michael Repper, who is in his second year as music director of the New York Youth Symphony Orchestra. He is an emerging conductor of classical music, jazz, pops, and musical theater. A graduate of Stanford University, he recently completed his doctoral residency at the Peabody Conservatory of Music as a student of Gustav Meyer and his longtime mentor, Marin Alsop, a world-famous conductor and violinist who is also an alumna of the New York Youth Symphony. Within these series, we'll be talking about a lot of names and symphonies and compositions that I certainly wasn't familiar with and you may not be as well. So I'll do my best to include some excerpts from these symphonies so that you get a taste of what we're talking about during these interviews. And stay tuned at the end of this episode where I'll fill you in on our very first podcast giveaway. But for now, Michael joins me to talk about his own path to conducting and the importance of music education and his passion for helping foster the next generation of artists. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me on this lovely afternoon. Yes, <laughs> it's a little bit of rain outside, yeah. but it's sunny inside. Right. So thank you overcast. so much for having me. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I'm thrilled, to, thrilled to talk about our program. Well, yeah, speaking of the program, what led you 
to New York and this particular youth symphony program? Sure. Um, I um, began conducting through a, a, a crazy happenstance set of events when I was about eight years old. I used to go to a summer institute for piano, Suzuki piano students, when I was five, six, seven years and old. And Suzuki is mostly known for violin. Yeah, it, maybe it's best known for violin, but now they've expanded to piano and all the string instruments and flute and a bunch of other things, and it's become a huge industry. I was a pianist in the program, and I used to go to this institute in Snowmass, Colorado, for really young students. And all the three years that I was there, I had this teacher from Melbourne, Australia. Her name was Nahama Patkin. And <laughs> she name. was just, oh, yeah, so great. And just <laughs> really charming, wonderful, excellent teacher. Super passionate about teaching young kids, and that's what she did very well. Yeah. But she was getting to be a bit older, and so my third year that I was there, um, she decided would be her last year coming all the way from Melbourne to the middle of Colorado. She said, Mike, instead of, um, you know, coming to, uh, instead of coming to Snowmass this year, or next year, why don't you come down to Australia and you just stay with me for a month and, I, you know, I'll put you up and give you piano lessons and all these sorts of things. And so thankfully, at the age of eight, my parents were somehow OK with that. Yeah. Um, and so there I went down to Melbourne, Australia, and I stayed with her. And wow. when it was extraordinary. <laughs> and and um, when I was there, what she did, as I said, was was really youth music education. And she used to do these concerts, these assembly concerts, where you would have the first graders come in, or the second graders come in, third graders come in for an hour. Right. She'd hire a little chamber orchestra. There'd be a little story and an actor. And it would be fun for the kids to sort of get them immersed in, in classical music. And, and, and were these mostly from operas or, or standalone classical pieces? Um, so it would be a mix. Uh, so um, usually it would be about a specific composer. So okay. one month would be composer X and then composer Y, etc. Um, so I guess it would all depend on what that composer is and what she wanted to feature. And right. when I was there, uh, was Meet Haydn Day. Um, <laughs> that's that's what it was. And so she had had this little chamber orchestra and there was a there was a, an actor, like I said, with a little script and costumes. And it was supposed to be a cute 45-minute thing that it wasn't all that serious, but it was supposed to just be fun for the kids. Yeah. And two or three minutes before the show was to start, the actor didn't show up. And so there she was with this chamber orchestra and the things, the kids are there ready to go and there's no actor. And so she turned to me um, and said, hey, Mike, you know, I was eight years old. She said, hey, Mike, how'd you like to dress up as Haydn and do the thing? <laughs> and so there I was. And, and, and I should show you a picture of this. Um, uh, in this ridiculous wig and long, you know, um, uh, robe, you know, very, you know, 18th century style. And uh, I had the little script printed out and to conduct, they gave me a car antenna, you know, like a 1990s car antenna that, that expanded to, you Beautiful. know, so it yes. was just fantastic. It was always, <laughs> it was basically as tall as I was actually. Part of Haydn's responsibility um, was to give a little conducting performance of this chamber orchestra, specifically of a piece called the Surprise Symphony that he wrote. And the Surprise Symphony was written because in the second movement, it starts very, very quiet. And then there's a, a loud bang that's supposed to be a surprise to kind of wake up the audience because Haydn was a prankster. But uh, because I had not ever been a conductor before and I had not played in an orchestra before and I was relatively ignorant of orchestral classical music at that point, it also was a surprise to me. I had no idea what was going to happen. <laughs> of course, the orchestra didn't need me to actually be conducting. Um, they could play it fine amongst themselves. So I was right. up there waving my arms and then all of a sudden this thing comes and then it's like, bang. <laughs> and, and, uh, and in that moment, it was very visceral, but in that moment, something hit me and I don't know what it was, but I was like, this is so cool. 
And so... Um, was was there a little part of your eight-year-old self that thought, I made that, I did that? <laughs> I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, <laughs> may, maybe there was, but there was definitely something in that moment where I said, you know, this is just so cool. I'm right here in the middle of this music, and it just sounds great. And, and so when I moved back to the States... Um, I was going into fourth grade, and so in California, where I'm from, in the fourth grade is when you're expected to pick up an instrument, usually the violin or um, a string instrument or the recorder or something like that in the public school system. And so I had already been playing the piano, but I started playing the violin. And as it goes, my violin teacher was also a conductor. And so I said, uh, hey, you know, could we dedicate the the last 10 minutes of our hour-long lesson to conducting? Uh, just I'm curious about it, you know? Yeah. And so we go, and after a year and a half, you know, we're doing 20 minutes and 40 minutes, and then a half hour, and then, you know, five or six years later, it's just a full-on conducting lesson, and I knew that it's exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so so it's it's like fate has basically yeah. just hit you in the face, said, this is what you're going to do. I think about it all the time, what would have happened to my whole life had the actor shown up. You know what I mean? It's huh. kind of crazy to think about because it was really in that moment, and I, I very specifically remember that moment of thinking that, you know, I I really want to do this. And so I, I was very lucky that that happened. You said fate, you know, I, uh, the stars aligned in a weird, weird way for, for me to do that. And because of youth music education in that moment, because that teacher in Australia had taken probably her own money and, you know, maybe grants and things like that, but her own initiative to create these programs for kids, that changed my life. And so what it taught me was that when we as music educators um, and even just professional musicians in general take the initiative to mentor and work with young students, you never know who's going to be in that room. You never know whose life you're going to completely change. Exactly. Um, and so that that's that's how I operate every day. And, and I operate the same way, whether I'm working with a youth orchestra, um, uh, such as this one, you know, a, a super elite youth orchestra like this one, um, or a professional orchestra or an amateur orchestra, it doesn't really matter. I think that so long as you go in with the mindset of you never know whose life you're going to alter. So you always operate to the best of your ability and with a positive attitude, then, you know, you end up making good music and you end up inspiring people to to go into the field and, 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 and help develop the field. Exactly. Yeah, because right now I'm in the midst of doing the musical Annie. Yeah, that's right. Which is all about kids. Yes, right. You know, you know and so, I yeah. mean, these, these young girls who are these orphans, some of them, you know, especially the, the one playing Annie and, and probably a few of the others, will continue to go on. Sure. And, and, and they will be musical sure. theater, you know, for the next years, decades to come. But there's some of them, it, this is just fun. Yeah. But they have other interests. Maybe, right. You know, maybe they're into sports. Maybe they play instrument. You know, yeah. but, but it's it's still so inspiring to see these these girls. I mean, I think they work harder than any of us oh, adults by far. Yeah, well, that, that, that is definitely true. There's something very uh, refreshing about working with the, the youth orchestra in the sense that the spirit is 100% there all the time. They, they want to give the best product. And I think that what you said about the, the varying interests is really important because I remember when I took the audition for the youth symphony, um, it so happened that my audition time was right after their break. Uh, and so just by happenstance, there were a bunch of, as I was getting ready to audition, there were a bunch of students roaming around and I got to talking with a couple of them. And I was, I remember talking with, um, a bass player who I want to say was the assistant principal bass or something is a very, very good bass player, 17. And so he was looking, he was applying for colleges and going through that whole process. And right. I asked him what he's doing. And he said, Oh, I really want to be a, um, a psychologist. Um, and you know, my concert master June is a phenomenally gifted young, uh, young violinist. She, I think, wants to start her own business, you know what I mean? And so 
when we're training people to be musicians, I think that it's important to realize that we're training them to be good team players, to have perseverance, to work hard, to um, be very detail-oriented, to have a positive attitude, and all of these sorts of things that will then serve them whether or not they go into music. Um, yeah, and because I, I've always seen musicians as like creative athletes. Yes, they're, they're, right. They're, there's a bit of dedication, <laughs> there's training, there's like hard work, there's falling on your butt and getting up again. I mean, right. there's, there's always Precisely. keep going. Precisely. And, and I, I also believe that it's important to really challenge students. At our upcoming program, we're doing uh, Bartok and Sherdo for Orchestra, which is one of the seminal uh, works of the, the 21st century. Uh, it's also one of the most difficult pieces in the canon to play. orchestra because it is such a talented orchestra can play anything and that's why it's important because I know that they're going to get through the end of the concert and look back on the hard work that they did and be very proud of it and be very proud that they were able to perform in a Carnegie Hall too. And you had mentioned that you got to speak to a couple of students before you had your own audition. What was that audition process like that application in yeah, getting sure. into the youth symphony? Sure, actually, um, they, they ran it very similarly to a standard professional orchestra, uh, how it would run, which is that it's more or less a two-year process where they uh, send out through various contacts um, a, uh, a, a solicitation for recommendations um, that may or may not be followed up with a with a public call for applications. So this, in this case, it wasn't, but uh, in many cases, it's both. Uh, Application like any other, you send in a CV, you send in usually a videotape. I'm pretty sure I sent in some videotapes of me doing it, maybe a statement. And then they narrowed it down to a selection of finalists. I believe there were six that actually came in to do a live um, audition. And mm -hmm. so we actually, it was very smart the way they did it. We were actually um, called in to rehearse the group. Gave them, I think, a very good opportunity and, and us as, as candidates an opportunity to work with the group and see what would be a good fit yeah. and everything. And I, I remember this, that... I, I was relatively unfamiliar with the New York Youth Symphony because I'd probably spent, you know, two months total in my entire life in New York, you know, either visiting or working. So, um, and so I didn't really know the quality until I started to research it and found out that it was, you know, maybe the, the nation's most elite youth orchestra. Because um, it's been around for how long? Uh, many years. I think this is the 56th year. Wow. Um, yeah. and, and it's just the standard is so high because we have so many students who are pursuing music uh, very professionally and conservatory and various other things because we do accept up to age 22. But even the 12-year-olds in our group are real killers. I mean, I, I doubt that if I were 12 and auditioning for the group, I would get in. Uh, these, <laughs> these, uh, they play circles around me. Right. But, but um, uh, so uh, I remember stepping into the audition and the audition piece was Brahms third symphony which is one of the hardest just hardest pieces ever it's so complicated and 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 com complex and you have to have a real maturity in order to do it and it starts off with these three big chords at the beginning and i, I just remember not really knowing what the sound was going to be like because i had never heard them but stepping in and immediately from the first chord being completely blown away by the maturity of their mm. sound because they're all so spirited and they're all so technically good. I mean, technically proficient at their instrument um, that it, it just, it 
was immediate. I, similarly to the thing back in, it kind of took me back to Australia for a minute, you know, with those chords and the surprise symphony to hear this youth orchestra play this piece that gives challenges to professional orchestras all the time. So I knew that we were in for for a, a, a good um, a, a, a good fit, and I think that they solicited um, feedback from the students on the basis of the audition, and so I uh, I was just thankful that that it worked out. And was there a transition period of passing off the baton? Yeah, so to speak? Uh, the, the previous uh, music director J.D. Gerson, who's a phenomenally gifted conductor and was the assistant conductor of the New York Philharmonic, was and still remains to be to be very helpful to me um, in terms of. Um, helping pass that that baton and, and learning the ins and outs and 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 all these sorts of things so um yes there was a transition period and of course because we're an orchestra uh, most orchestras are relatively dormant in the summer because it's festival season or various other things mm-hmm. and we mirror the school the school calendar um and this year it so happens we're continuing through the summer we're actually going on tour to spain um, well, that's so, exciting. Oh, I can't wait. And it's actually only the second time this orchestra's gone on tour. They went to Argentina a couple of years ago. Um, and I'm thrilled. Uh, it's going to be great. We're, we're performing with um, Fei Fei, who is a, um, an internationally acclaimed pianist, was a finalist in the Van Cliburn Piano Competition. And we're taking a piece that we commissioned by Theo Chandler overseas. Um, and, and, and I think that maybe more than anything with the New York Youth Symphony, I'm proudest of its commitment to new music um, and diversifying the field through new music. Many people may not know that um, the New York Youth Symphony has actually commissioned and given a world premiere at every single one of its Carnegie Hall Hall concerts going back a couple of decades. That's amazing. Um, So though we may not perform as much as a professional orchestra does or many other orchestras because we only give so many concerts a year, I don't think there's any other orchestra in the world that can say that has that level of commitment to new music where we're consistently doing new music. And what's exciting about that um, is there's several things that are exciting. One is for the audience. You know, they're hearing a lot of new music, but... Because we're a training program for, for young students, that means that it's it's being taught that it's important to value new music. And so then later on, whether or not they pursue professional music, if they do pursue professional music, they know that new music is where the excitement is and, and where they should be investing a lot of energy in. Yeah. And uh, if they become dedicated audience members, then they're trained in, in how to like it and how to appreciate it. With the with the students themselves in getting into the actual program, mm-hmm. sure. I guess students will either move on to other things or mm-hmm. they'll get old enough and transition out into right. something else. So how does that uh, that influx of new sure. students and old students Yeah, work? It, one of the things that makes professional orchestras really gel is the fact that they really get used to to playing together exactly. for 10, 12, 15, 50 years, you know? Um, so they really get to know each other. Um, we obviously face that challenge where each year we have many new students because people will go off to college or uh, they age out because we only accept from age 12 to 22. But you asked, how do we gel? Um, and we actually have a really great way of doing that, um, which is what we call kickoff weekend, where we actually, the first weekend of the group each year, we load everybody onto a bus and take them out to Wading River, Long Island, to this big um, compound, more or less. It's a big campground. It's just beautiful, right on the Long Island Sound. And what ends up happening, like any organization, you end up, after the auditions, with you have this group that knows each other, and this group that knows each other, and this group right. knows. And there are the 12, 13, 14-year-olds, especially the newcomers who might be a little timid. Then there are the 20, 21, 22-year-olds who are you know, studying at Manhattan School of Music or Juilliard and very, very confident and whatever. And they might all know each other, and they're all being nice, but by the end of the three days, 
everybody knows everybody yeah. and everybody's very much on the same team and you or you arrive back with an orchestra that's ready to make music because orchestras are teams and if you're Absolutely. not if you're not performing as a team then you won't the product won't be as good as it can be. Yeah, I mean, um, that gets back to that yeah. athlete analogy that we exactly were right. I mean, if everyone has their position, yeah. and if one position fails, then right. that brings the whole team down. So everyone right. has to raise their game. In the end, it's, it's a very, very competitive group, and every year is a, a very high quality, and, and this year is no exception. I bet. What have you learned from that first year that you're now bringing into your second year? Like, like maybe you're, you're doing something different or something that you loved from that first year you sure. brought back. Sure. Um, maybe the biggest thing that I've that I've learned, maybe the biggest opportunity that I've had is to work with um, pieces that require giant orchestrations. Um, huge yeah, yeah, that sections. makes sense because obviously a contrabassoon is not going to be in every on, in, orchestra. On every, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and we don't have to make sure that it is on every piece, but you have to you have to keep it busy. So so yeah. um, so uh, that's one thing that I've learned. But but also I think that from a personal standpoint. Uh, I've learned that these students, they want you to be honest and give honest feedback about when they can be doing better. Um, and they, they, want, mm. they want you to, to push them. And mm-hmm. I think that, um, that one thing that I, that I really am doing more of as we continue and as my relationship with the orchestra grows is to continue to raise the, the level of excellence that, that we expect of the students. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I think that's good for any artist to, to kind right. of get their ego out of the way and right. be like, okay, what, what am I doing great? Okay, right. let's let's pursue that, but what do I need to work on to, yeah. to build that up? Yeah. And I think that that's wonderful that they have such an attitude. Yeah, they, they really do. Like I said, I, I continue to be inspired by them. So it, it, it's a really good time, and I, I think that in the rehearsal setting, we aim to make it a very um, casual but also very intense you know, there is an expectation that you will come in with the music prepped, um, but at the same time, it's a fun time. You know, we're working very hard. Yes, much much like you know, I come from the theater world. It it, it is it is a product. You're putting yeah. together a show. You're, right. pu- you're putting together something that people are going to pay money to see. So it needs to be at a certain level. But at the same time, we're artists. We you know we we feel this. We want this. We, right. We have a yearning, and there's there's a part of us that just in or at least it should, enjoy this process. Right. And so I assume you want to instill yeah. that joy as much as the technical, you know, taskmaster kind of thing. You also want to make sure that they love yeah. it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, as a conductor, um, I get asked so many times by an audience member, you know, wow, what are you really doing up there? And there was a great Far Side comic, I think. I think it was the Far Side and a comic of uh, the conductor there and looking over the the score and the score says uh, wave wave arms until the music stops and in in that and in that is I, I think it was the far side it might have been the New Yorker I, I forget but I get asked by audience members all the time whether here in New York or down in Virginia mm-hmm. where I also conduct uh, what are you actually doing up there and and that's a really good question because I think that it's important especially as a conductor of a youth orchestra to realize that the conductor is not physically making any of the sound on the stage. I mean to say that the actual sound is coming from the people in front of you actually making it. Your job as the conductor is to to coach, but also to inspire. And the only way that you can inspire, this is my belief, sort of my mantra about conducting, that the only way that you can really inspire people is to, to, to perform to their highest ability is to be ultra energetic, um, really explain why what we're doing is important um, and love what you're doing with every fiber of your being. And, and, and if you couple that with solid technique from the podium, you'll get a good product because, because uh, musicians, and I, I find especially students like in the New York East Symphony, just like you said, will want to 
perform to that. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll want to deliver. Um, and when I see these students at the end of the concert really relish in the hard work that they've done, um, that makes me very proud, you know, in the same way that, you know, they, they all want to take a picture with me after the concert, you know, and it's just like, yeah, you know, I'm really happy that we did this together. Um, and I, I hope that whether or not they go into music, that they remember this time that, that we've spent together um, and what they've learned about it from a, from a self-building point of view. My goal, my, my dream, uh, would be to, to be conducting the world's greatest orchestras and to have, be the music director of a major symphony and get to guest conduct a lot and meet, uh, meet people from all over the world, meet audiences from all over the world, meet, um, meet orchestra players from all over the world. Uh, that, that would be, if you asked me what my dream was and what, my, what track it was, that, that would we be all what have it dreams. is. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, um, and it, it might happen. It also might not happen. And so my... Um, the way that I sort of conduct my business is that I want to be working in music at all times. And what, no matter, even if, let's say, I happen to become, you know, down the road, the music director of a major or major uh, American or worldwide international orchestra or things like that, I will always still be working with students. To me, music is music is music is music. And I'm just as proud to work with a professional orchestra, as I do, as I, I get to work with the Baltimore Symphony and I get to cover the St. Louis Symphony from time to time and various other sorts of things. And yeah. and you approach it all the exact same way and you make it as good as you can make it. And right. that mindset has served me very well because I find that people respond to that and people want to work with that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a big thing because, uh, you know, many of you listening like me are come from a theater background. Sure. And so we know... What it's like to, you know, you start in, in school, then maybe some church musicals, then community theater, and then mm-hmm. regional. And, and there's kind of this growth. And as you grow, then, you know, a lot of us, then we come here to New York, and that's that's the next level. Sure. Off-Broadway, Broadway, and sure. tours, and that kind of thing. And so there always is, like, that next rung, that next step for us. And, and I know for myself, I have to, you know, keep that goal in mind. And that's certainly what I'm pushing for. But I've had to take a step back and realize, as you said, music is music. Theater is theater. Right. Wherever I am, I need to be giving my best, enjoying the process, and bringing what I can on stage, right? And, and I assume that that's that, yeah. that that's what you're talking about. With yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. And 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 in the music world, there is a, a certain level of that growth. For example, I don't think that um, you know, uh, let's say the next step for me, hopefully, might be the music director of a a smaller um, you know smaller but still large scale professional orchestra in the United States um, or or elsewhere. There's no way that they would consider me for that job had I not already been doing this. So there is the same sort of level of, you know, sort of growth in that way. It's just, as you said, it's it's completely out of your control. You know, it, it, totally. it, it's, it may not be completely out of your control, but it's it's largely out of your control. Well, well, well like yeah. you said, there's yeah. only so many symphonies, yeah. so many openings. Yeah. And so a lot yeah. of that is going to be based upon timing, upon yes. luck. Right. But still, you have to have the skill and be yeah. ready whenever that, those opportunities come And in come the arts along. world, of course, you know, uh, you need to you need to be recommendable because, as I said, for the New York U Symphony, they, they actually didn't do a public job posting right me word of mouth me getting invited to apply Mm -hmm. um and then getting invited to audition was is entirely related to um people whom i know thinking of me being the one person they thought of you know to to recommend um you have to be that person otherwise you're going to lose out on those opportunities from 
a musical director standpoint, we I, I know what that is in, in mm-hmm. theater. Sure. Uh, how does how does that differ from what you do as a conductor, or are the two? kind of similar. Yeah, sure. Uh, really good question. I've done uh, quite a lot of musical theater in my time, and um, we were talking about this before the interview, that that I always hope that I'm able to do musical theater to a certain to a certain extent. And I, um, in many ways, it's very similar. A music director of a musical is responsible for many of the same things that a, a music director of a, an orchestra might be. Um, you have to um, train the singers. You've got to train the pit. You have to present a, a very high quality sort of thing. Um, I think that in a music director of a um, of a musical and that sort of situation is um, traditionally it's not necessarily but traditionally more middle management. In terms of the structure, for example, you might True. you answer to yeah. the director. Right. You answer. Um, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the music director services the vision of the director. This ultimately. is precisely right. That's a much yeah. better way of putting it than the way I just put it. Because <laughs> uh, I don't want to offend music directors nationwide by saying that they're that they're middle management. But what you said is correct. That yes, there's a vision set by people above that level through which hopefully they have some kind of voice in. Because I think good relationships mm-hmm. between directors of musicals and music directors have a good relationship and are able to create that vision together. Whereas Whereas in the classical music world, typically the music director is the the person who gets to set that sort of musical vision mm-hmm. um, and things follow from there. Which is not to say that there aren't other parallels, needing to audition, needing to know how to coach, needing to know how to inspire and that sort of stuff. There are my, I seem to, my very first conducting lesson ever with that violin teacher back in San Clemente, California, when mm-hmm. I was 10, uh, he turned to me and he said, are you sure you want to be a conductor? Because you'll be lucky if you can keep conducting to 5% conducting and 95% the other stuff that you have to do. Um, and he could not have been more correct in that. And I think that that probably is true both in the musical theater world and, and also in the conducting world where there's so much organizational work, mm-hmm. especially growing up. You know, if you if you become the music director of a, of a, a union show, for example... Um, you're not doing a lot of the stuff that you had to do earlier. For example, if you're the music director of a community level production, not only are you um, <laughs> are you doing everything that you have to do, but you probably have to arrange the thing for a Absolutely. smaller group. You need to set up the chairs, and mm. you need to figure out where the music stands are coming from, and you need to do all this stuff, and all, you know all this organizational stuff that is so far above and beyond just playing the piano or just training the singers. Right. In the same way that when I was coming up as a conductor, and fortunately I've gotten to the point where this is no longer necessary, but, but um, I, you, you put in your time. You are bribing your friends with pizza to come together to, to put together your orchestra. You're renting music stands. You're printing out the parts. You're right. making it as easy as possible for everybody to do it. And so... Um, do you still have to do any orchestrations or kind of... Yeah, uh, uh, I do a lot of orchestrations <laughs> and arranging um, when when it's necessary. Yeah. Um, things like that. Um, uh, you might want to perform a certain thing that, re- that requires a certain instrumentation. Um, so yes, from, from, from time to time. And I enjoy doing that. And a lot of times musical directors in musicals are also playing. Does that ever happen in uh, your orchestral? It, it, it has happened. Um, I, I love playing myself. I just opened my season down in Virginia, and uh, Grace Park, who is a tremendously gifted violinist uh, that people should know, um, 
and she's based here in New York. I think um, I've heard her name. Oh, she's yeah. a phenomenal, phenomenal violinist. She came down to Virginia and opened our season doing Mozart's Fifth Violin Concerto. And she said, uh, well, we were talking. I said, you know, we really ought to do an encore because they're just going to love you, which is true because she got a massive standing ovation. And so um, I said, oh, I'll just play from the piano. And so we got together and played something for the audience uh, uh, afterwards. And so um, I, I, I do play a lot from time to time. Um, and I, I make sure that there's at least one thing on every season that I play because if I don't, I'll forget, you know what right. I mean? And so last season I did Beethoven's choral fantasy playing from the piano. I've done Rhapsody in Blue conducting from the piano. Um, and, and so it, it's very important for me to continue playing and, and I love, and I, I think that, is that, that something you do with the youth symphony as well that you, you uh, play with them? Uh, I haven't yet. I would love to program something where I, where I play the piano. Or, you know, I, was, I, it would be I, great. I think the students yeah. would love that. Oh I, yeah. I, I thank would you. think that oh. you kind of come down off the podium. You, I, uh, you're on their level. I, I, uh, I, I appreciate creative. that. And, uh, um, I, it's been on my mind of something that, that I think it'd be very fun to do. I think that it'd be, uh, it would be fun. It hasn't happened yet in the year that I've been there, but I think it'd be, it'd be fun to do. Last year we did a, um, reading of the nutcracker for fun and it doesn't really matter you know we get it as good as we get it but it's just a reading play the music etc and we had a holiday party and it's great if we ever have the opportunity to do that again it'd be great to do a rhapsody in blue or some other thing and if that ever made it onto a concert i'd be i'd be thrilled yeah within musical theater a lot of times uh, players will know many different instruments traditionally in the orchestra world in the classical orchestra world um typically no, unless they're very related instruments. For example, um, in order to land a gig, I think, as a flute player, you basically have to be able to play the piccolo. Very, very similar instruments. Exactly. You know, if, you, if you want to have a greater shot at learning a gig or getting a gig as an oboe player, it helps if you know how to play the English horn. As a clarinetist, you need to be able to be playing all the different you know, transpositions of, of clarinet. It helps, for example, if you're a clarinetist who can also play bass clarinet because there are fewer people who do that and if you have access. Or right. if you're a clarinet player who can play saxophone, that helps monstrously. A bassoon player who can play contrabassoon. You don't typically get a bass trombone player who plays violin. That That's not a typical thing because people have really, really taken a, a very strict right. sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, brass is kind of its own thing. Right. When reads, you know, right. all, all the different sections. Right. And unlike musical theater writing, where in, in musical theater, especially over the last uh, several decades, there's been uh, um, uh, just a movement, I think, budget-wise, to sort of pare down the size of the pit um, in terms of amount of because the more people, the more money. And, and so that has necessitated crazy doublings where you have, as you said, a flute player who's doing flute, clarinet, oboe, saxophone, and triangle. In the traditional classical music world, the music necessitates that the flute player is holding the flute the entire performance. Then we have cool things like, for example, you know, we've got an opportunity for um, uh, on the, our upcoming concert for um, an alto sax player. And so it happens that one of our cellists plays alto sax. So well, that's interesting. Yeah, to go from cello to sax. Yeah, and so <laughs> it's much better for us to give that opportunity to him because he's mm -hmm. perfectly qualified and capable of doing it um, instead of going and finding you know yet another person. So it's um, uh, I aim to sort of make it equitable and 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 uh, find an opportunity for everybody to get involved. But there we don't typically have the same uh, I would call it like doubling concerns as you have in 
in uh, the musical theater world. <laughs> a, a few orchestra for dummies. Yeah, question. sure, absolutely. You know. Yeah. So hopefully, with, I can answer them. We'll oh, see. I, I, I'm sure. <laughs> um, with regards to to the orchestrations, yes, because I, I assume, like much like musical theater, a composer writes a, a basic melody, maybe like a chord chart, whatever it is, and then an orchestrator actually fills it out and brings in all the mm-hmm. instruments. Mm-hmm. Is it much the same way with like Haydn didn't write every single instrument so he actually he actually would have oh okay um, yeah, yeah see, see yeah like, no no it's good yeah no it's absolutely true um uh tra- t- traditionally in the classical music world the, the composer will have um written the entire thing out so when um, you're getting beethoven haydn that yes they, they, these are the flute part or the oboe part that yes. they wrote themselves yes precisely oh, okay. in in very old cases like for example you, you mentioned beethoven it's particularly a concern for bach um uh, I should say that the pieces that we're performing are sometimes the best intuited of what they actually wrote. For, for Beethoven, for example, now we know that it's what he wrote because there are music historians who have gone through lengths to make sure I'm that sure. it's exactly right. Beethoven was a perfectionist and he never used two pieces of paper. So he he just continued to cross out and it's nearly impossible to read what he actually wrote. But he did write everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so luckily in this day and age, we've had people who have gone back into what he's written and done critical editions and typed out with fancy computer notation exactly what he wrote. Bach's music was lost for decades and was found you know, decades after he was dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, a lot of what we, um, what we attribute to Bach um, are music historians going back in, looking at what he wrote, best intuiting what he did. And we have a lot of original manuscripts and things like that. But typically when you get um, a piece by by a, a composer, it, they've written the entire thing top to bottom. That's amazing. Um, so, um, so I think that but people... it doesn't learn... necessarily mean that they play all those no, instruments. No, no, not at all. They, they just understand how to notate yeah. for, for each, each yeah. instrument. Yeah, and, and the limitations. Um, and, you know, knowing, um, for example, if you write fortissimo for three trombones... You better hope that whoever is playing with them is going to be able to keep up with it. You and, know what I and mean? In, and in front of them, doesn't yes, go down. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, so, and that, and that comes with practice. Um, but these composers are very, very good at knowing, you know, the ins and outs of of making orchestral texture, um, and and really telling a story. And and we're kind of in an era right now of mu- new music. I think of, of programmatic music. You know, because programmatic meaning that the music is about something. Uh, it's written about right. with a specific thing in mind. That's with, not for with, all with the theme or a, a theme or, or a story yeah. or some other inspir- direct inspiration. That's sort of the era that we're in. I think not every piece is. Re- you do see a lot of symphonic work that's just music for music's sake, um, a great music for great music's sake, I should say, and just as, as worthwhile. Or a concerto that's that's of the same thing. It's not really about a specific story. But I think that most of the music that's being written right now um, is with a specific. Um, inspiration in mind and so that is actually really good for our audiences because it's easier i think for audiences who are um less familiar with new music to approach it if they at least know oh what was the composer thinking about what was it you know what was the inspiration oh, behind this helps. piece you know it definitely. can it can sort of help because as people know about new classical music it may not always be the most approachable but i think that what people um are afraid of is is um, that they just don't know how. You know, I think that the only thing that it's almost like they they want to put pressure on themselves. Like, you go and listen to a Mozart symphony, and there's so much detail, and you could study it for 50 years and still not 
get every single thing that Mozart was able to write. But you listen to it one time, and it's really lovely, and it's very easily approachable, and you don't have to spend a lot of brain power to really get it, whereas a lot of the new music is not as approachable in that way, not yeah. as accessible in that way. And so the what, what I tell audiences when they're approaching new music um, and hearing a piece of new music for the first time is just let it act on you. And, and that's all the composer is expecting. Just just let it, let yourself hear it, let yourself be moved by it. That um, let yourself have emotions. That emotion might be, I didn't really like that. And that's cool. It might also be, I need to hear that again, or I need to hear it another five times in order to feel like I really get it. Or it might be that you really, really liked it. As a conductor, that's what I want the audience to be thinking, is that they simply should just listen and let it act. And you like it, you don't like it, just enjoy the experience, you know? Exactly. Um, and, and, and then new music will become more approachable in that way. The one amazing thing about the New York Youth Symphony specifically, as I mentioned earlier, is that they're just so mature. So they already come in without really needing too much of a prod to know their place. You know, the violins know their place within the string section. The bassoons know their place within the woodwind section. They all know essentially how their part operates and all these sorts of things. And they, they probably are familiar with the piece in general. Since you are dealing with such vast ages and therefore vast experiences, yes. they come. do you tend to find that you have to kind of teach some and then you're just more kind of maintaining others and it's a really it's a really good question um that's a very good question um the the what the way i'll say it is that the 12 year olds because uh, we accept from 12 to 22 right. the 12 year olds who are accepted into the ensemble genuinely beat out people who are older um who auditioned so actually, I find that yes, obviously there are there are varying degrees of of capability. That you right. have people who just have years of experience more, and and whether or not, there might be a twelve year old, for example, who may actually be more technically qualified from a technique point of view than a nineteen or twenty year old. But the nineteen or twenty year old has eight years of experience in an orchestra, and there's a whole technique having to do with that. So I find that the best way to do it is to let everybody mentor everybody else in terms of their strengths and their weaknesses. Hmm. We try to make sure in general that older people in the strings at least are sitting next to younger people so that there's yeah. that sort of that sort of thing and everybody can always get better. So even our most qualified, most capable people are always growing. I don't I don't find that there's any sort of um, stagnation or sort of maintenance um, at a certain level or people waiting to, to get back up. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously we, we try to make sure everybody's learning the parts as quickly as possible. We do a, a very complicated piece like this, and it does take some people longer than others. As I said, we're doing this concerto um, for uh, both classical and electric guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah talk about this upcoming Yeah, I will, absolutely. Yeah, so um, we, we have two, and, and one of them is on December 2nd at Carnegie Hall. Um, uh, and uh, we're doing uh, Palafsian dances. Interestingly, um, <laughs> Borodin's Palafsian dances uh, is where every song from Kismet came from. They just ripped it all off. So if you know <laughs> Stranger in Paradise or any of those other sorts of things. And this you, is my beloved. This is, yes, they yeah. all came from, from this piece. Uh, 
Um, so musical theater lovers will actually what, totally what about dig Wasai this concert. Wazir? That's one of my favorite songs. Uh, actually, I'm not. Movie. I'm not sure. I know the big one is Stranger in Paradise that it came yeah, from, yeah, but yeah, but uh, I'm one. actually embarrassingly not all that familiar with Kismet. But um, but well, it's so rarely done. Yeah, right. So, but but anyway, I do know that historically they just straight up ripped off this music. So uh, <laughs> it's like 100. percent Yeah, it's great. And so um, <laughs> and who could blame them? It's it's an amazing piece. So, yeah. but anyway, um, so we're we're starting with that piece, and then we're doing maybe the most exciting part about it is we commissioned a, a, a classical and electric guitar concerto, by which I mean she'll play both at a certain point. She'll play one and then play the other, play one, play the other. Hmm. Um, with orchestra, and and to, I think that there are very few, if any, examples of any piece like that ever having been done where you have both a classical and electric guitar with an orchestra on stage. Well, well I think any electrical yeah. uh, contemporary instrument in an orchestra, I think, right. is, an, is an oddity. And so the students yeah. are stoked to be doing this with I an electric bet. guitarist. Um, and Gigi, who is the guitarist who's doing it, um, is just extraordinary. And Natalie Dietrich is an extraordinary composer um, who's, who's come in to um, help coach the orchestra and has been there during the rehearsals. Um, and uh, it's been a very, very collaborative process. And we're ending the concert with Bartok Concerto for Orchestra, um, which is, as I said earlier, one of the one of the greatest works of music ever written. Um, one of the certainly one of the seminal works of the the 21st century. Um, and uh, it should be a very exciting concert that ha that has a lot of interest for for everybody um so it should be a very very good time and and the electric guitar the classical electric guitar concerto is is very exciting because it's it's groundbreaking it's sort of a landmark um uh achievement for this this group and that the orchestra is very excited to put it on i bet yeah I bet. obviously the youth symphony is all about the the teamwork and about yes. the orchestra as a whole yes. but as you you bring in these soloists, uh, mm -hmm. whether they're professional or you'll have different students have. So is that a, is that a different, um, I guess, a different approach to train a soloist versus a, an orchestra member? Yeah, that's actually really interesting. So um, this is actually another area where it might be different from musical theater to the classical music world. When we, when we bring in a soloist, they're actually very much in charge. Our job becomes mm -hmm. instantly to accompany um, and it's different by the piece. For example, this guitar concerto that we're doing is a premiere. So we're all very much putting it together, a very collaborative process. Whereas at the end of the year, when we bring in Feifei to do the Rachmaninoff piano concerto, we will do it her way and she will be in charge. You know what I mean? I will be the accompanist and we will all collectively be the accompanist. But in rehearsal, should I, for example, do a certain thing that she doesn't like, what she wants wins. And that, that's my mindset. Ah, and she says, you know, could we really do it this way? Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. And we change and here we go. Because it's all about the soloist in that instance. And so I think that the number one comment that I got from our soloists last year, and we had three tremendous soloists last year. We had Christine Lamprea, we had um, Damari McGill, who's the principal flute player of the Seattle Symphony, and Julia Bullock, who is one of the you know great um, uh, soprano soprano uh, opera singers. Uh, you can look her up on online. You see all the tremendous stuff that she's doing, um, and uh, I think was named on the the list of top forty. Uh, movers in the classical music world of New York Times or something. A list similar to that. I got that name totally wrong. I'm sorry, Julia, but she's she's definitely somebody to go see when you get the opportunity. The number one comment that I got from these soloists who are hugely famous and working all over the world with some of the greatest orchestras was how responsive the orchestra was when they wanted to take a little time or a little rubato, the orchestra follows. They're very much using their ear probably far and above 
what other youth orchestras are doing. Huh. Um, and so that's the number one comment that I that I get from the soloists is that they're very, very responsive, um, that they really feel like they're working with a live instrument. Because sometimes soloists can go into an orchestra and it's sort of just like... It's an, it's robotic. It's like, this is how we do yeah, it. This is the only way we do it. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, my, my and that's not the case, obviously, with, with all orchestras. And, um, you know, the people who I've, I've trained with have taught me um, that it is our role as conductors to be accompanists in that situation, and the soloist is in charge, and it's, it is a collaboration, but in the end, it's the soloist. That's what they're doing. They come in. I make sure that we, we choose soloists who are going to be um, team players. You know what I mean? We don't want to bring in a soloist to work with a youth orchestra who's going to be an egomaniac. And they know that the quality is going to be good. So they, they walk in sort of... Actually, I think that they walk in really excited um, because they're, they they get to work sort of in that environment. And I, I we, we, we try as a team, as a team of us who pick the soloists, and we take that into account, you know, people's reputation for being supportive to kids. And we want to make sure that the students are getting a, a good experience out of it as well. Well, speaking of, of being supportive, what is the best way that, uh, you know, the people who hearing this podcast people yeah. how what's the best way that we the public can support the youth symphony oh well thank you so much for asking um so uh, number uh, number one way that, that we we hope for your support is to come to our concerts and, and you can certainly see them uh, on the carnegie hall website or if you go to nyys.org um you can you can certainly see everything but we also um if you're interested in our programs and interested in learning more and certainly if we're interested in donating we would be um, tremendously uh, thankful. You know, we we offer a mostly tuition-free program for our students. Um, it costs us roughly fifty-five hundred, I think, dollars per student to put on the program, and the students only provide a, a small portion of that at the beginning um, as a small registration fee. So most of it is is supported by donations. Um, which, and so which, I, which I think is amazing. It is, and we we try we try to make sure that that money is never the reason why somebody can't join an orchestra like this. That exactly. you have, and that's the only way. To to be a, a true member of the community and to really give back and um, be, you know, foster real talent because talent can come from anywhere. Mm -hmm. It can come from people who have means and it can also come from people who don't. And so, you know, we have, we support, through our donations, we support not just our programs, which are substantial, but we also support um, our Vargas Fetter um, fellowships for underserved communities, um, which provide, I think, $5,000 over the course of a couple of years mm -hmm. to people who, who want to pursue music um, seriously or assist with getting their college. So your donations go a very, very long way. So um, if anybody's interested in giving, I, I do and highly encourage you to go to our website, myys.org, and help support what we're doing, help support these tremendous kids. And if you need any convincing, I, I really encourage you to come to our concerts at, at Carnegie Hall because it is the best value uh, for for high-level classical music in New York City, you know, you close your eyes and you listen to the New York Youth Symphony and you think, wow, these kids can really, really, really play. And so to think that you can hear that for only $30 and you can do it at Carnegie Hall is really fantastic. So um, we hope to see you there. Yeah, yeah. You had mentioned the the December second. Yeah, December second. Yeah, and so I I definitely plan on, on being yeah, please, there too. Uh, uh, really, really, yeah. <laughs> we'll have you backstage too. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, love it's, it. it's well. Thank yeah. you, Michael, so much for oh, joining. Oh, you're thank so you. welcome. It's great to talk about our programs, and I hope to see some of you at our at our concerts. Actually, yeah. I will be there. Good, excellent. I'll see you there. <laughs> thanks. All right, thanks. Thanks so much for joining me and Michael on this episode of the Spotlight Series featuring the New York Youth Symphony. And also thank you for sticking around to the end so I can tell you about our very first podcast giveaway. 
As Michael said, one of the best ways to support the Youth Symphony is by attending their concerts. So, to every one of you who reposts or retweets this episode, will receive a 25% discount code on tickets to their December 2nd concert. And from those reposting and retweeting, one lucky winner will win two free tickets to the concert right here in New York City. For more details, follow the While Never Make It podcast on Instagram and Twitter, where you too can spread the word about New York Youth Symphony and join me for their concert December 2nd at Carnegie Hall. Until next time, I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones. Take care. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.